As we look at this passage, there are certain questions that, if you're familiar with the Bible, might occur to you uh, if you read down through it. For example, were the Pharisees right to turn away the blind and the lame from God's presence as they were doing by Jesus' day in the New Testament times? Was David right to eat the food from the temple that was dedicated for God and for the priests? Were the Israelites right to bring God's sacrifices that were flawed, that were imperfect, in the time of Malachi? From these two chapters, I think we'll see that since God sanctifies you, you're not to defile what is holy. God wants His servants, their service, and their offerings to be pure and acceptable. And yet... We have to also recognize where we are in contrast to the book of Leviticus. In Jesus, the way is open for those who are imperfect to be made perfect. For what is reserved for a special group to be shared by all, and for what was unacceptable to be made acceptable. So first of all, let's see how God makes the imperfect perfect from chapter 21. For the Israelites, those who offered God's Food, his sacrifices, his offerings had to be ceremonially clean and physically and personally without defect. We saw this in the first few verses. Priests could not participate in funerals or mourning for anyone beyond immediate family. So when it says in chapter 21, verse 1, no one shall defile himself for a dead person, he's saying that they could not go to a funeral where there was a dead person becomes ceremonially unclean except for immediate family. For the high priest, he was not even to go for the death of an immediately fa- immediate family member. Verse 10, The priest who is the highest among his brothers shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor ha- shall he approach any dead person, or defile himself even for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary or profane the sanctuary of his God, For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. This echoes, I think, back to earlier in Leviticus and also in the book of Exodus, where, remember, the brothers are struck dead by offering the strange incense before God. And Moses says to Aaron and the two remaining sons, don't go out of the tabernacle. You have to stay there. You can't go mourn them. You can't go near their dead bodies. You are in God's service, and you are not even allowed to go and participate in their funeral. And that standard was even higher for the high priest. He couldn't go to anyone's funeral, not his mother, not his father, not an immediate relative. When it came to marriage as well, there were similar requirements for the priest. So, for example, uh, the priests were were not allowed to marry, rather, a woman who had been profaned by harlotry or adultery, nor were they to take a woman who had been divorced. They were not allowed to marry someone in those instances. The high priest, interestingly, was not allowed to even marry a widow in verse 14. Priests were also not allowed to serve if they had certain physical defects listed in verses 16 through 24, though they could eat of the temple food. So how are we supposed to think about these things? Was it a rejection of family responsibilities for God to require them to skip the funeral of their uncle or of their cousin or of uh, someone more extended relative like that? Was it reasonable to hold the high priest to a higher standard than that? Was it uh, viewing women who had been divorced or who were widowed 
which nowhere in the Bible is that condemned as being sinful, was that uh, viewing them as somehow lesser in the nation of Israel. Was it in, uh, in terms of someone who was blind or who was lame, not being allowed to serve as a priest? Was this a treating of that person, sort of what we would say today, a kind of discrimination against someone for a physical disability? That's what it sounds like at first, right? But the picture of what God is showing the Israelites, particularly the Levites here, is this. Even if something is not someone's fault, God still demanded perfection in his presence. And so for the person who had died, it was not a rejection of the person who had died that there was no family relationship. It was a recognition that their service to God took priority over that human relationship. And to participate in going near that person's dead body would then bring the defilement of sin and death into God's tabernacle. In the case of marriage, it was not to say necessarily that the woman that they were not allowed to marry was in herself sinful, although certainly someone who was actively committing Adultery would be excluded. Most likely what's in view here is someone who had been defiled by it um, and, and perhaps had not been executed by the nation according to the parameters given earlier in the book. For whatever reason, she's still alive. That person could theoretically have turned from that sin, perhaps. Clearly the person who was divorced might not have been at fault in it. And clearly the woman who was widowed was certainly not sinful. And so the point is not to focus on the personal worth of the women that a priest was not allowed to marry. The point was to say this. When there had been some sort of potential defilement according to the rules and regulations that God had laid out, God did not want someone who was in his service to join himself to that person and then bring that defilement into the temple, the tabernacle. The one that probably is most offensive to our modern sensibilities is this idea that someone who's blind or lame couldn't serve in the tabernacle, right? The rabbis argued about why this might be the case. They said, well, a blind person could never know if they were clean or unclean because they couldn't see what it was that they were touching. Was it a clean animal? Was it a clean person? Like they could come in contact with someone who was, who was uh, a, for, for example, a leper, right? And not know that they had been near that person. That would make them unclean and then they would unintentionally defile the tabernacle. It seems like a reasonable explanation for blindness, right? But what reason did God have to bar someone who, for example, was lame? or someone who had uh, perhaps a skin disease? What, what, why bar that person? Again, it's not evaluating the worth of that person individually. God's not saying you're rejected, you're cast out from the people. He's just saying they couldn't serve as a priest. Why do we know that God was not rejecting that person specifically? Because, verse 22, he may eat the food of his God, only he shall not go into the tabernacle to serve as a priest. So God was actually concerned about that person's well-being, providing food for that person. Even though he was not allowed to serve as a priest, he was allowed to share in the gifts and food that were brought to the priests. But God's concern was that these people could not serve him in perfection in 
His tabernacle. And yet today in Jesus, we see that those who are or would have been considered unclean in Old Testament times, and those with defects can come near, though God still does require His disciples to follow Him. Think about the person who today, or in Jesus' day, starting there, said, Jesus said, follow me. And they said, well, no, I need to first go bury my father and my mother. Or first, I have this other responsibility. God calls his disciples to the same level of commitment that he did to people in the Old Testament. If there is a conflict between your allegiance to someone on earth and your allegiance to God, your allegiance to God takes priority. And so when Jesus said to someone, come follow me, and they said, well, I've got to go take care of these family things first, Jesus is saying, you're not acknowledging me as the central and most important focus of everything in your life. You're not really a disciple committed and devoted to following after me. When we think about what the Pharisees had done by Jesus' day in terms of who was allowed to come to the temple, they expanded what God had said. God said, you can't serve as a priest if you're blind or lame. But what seems to have happened by Jesus' day was this. You can't even go into the temple if you're blind or lame. Which is why Jesus encounters the blind and lame on the steps outside the temple, in the courtyard. Which is why the Pharisees are so incensed when the blind and lame come to Jesus in the temple and he heals them. Think about what that would have looked like for the man who was born blind for the man who is lame for the better part of his life, for someone like the Ethiopian eunuch who similarly would have been barred on multiple grounds from entering into the temple, in the relationship that he now has by trusting in Jesus, faith in Jesus, he now, all of them, have access to God in a way that they did not have before. And the Pharisees were angry because this went against their perception of the rules that they had established for who could and couldn't come into the temple. But they had taken what God had said, a priest may not serve me if these things are going on, and they had expanded it to anyone may not come in. And Jesus says, now the way is open for all to come in. Now, building on that, even though immorality is still wrong, those who were immoral are able to be sanctified in Jesus. And this is connected with what we looked at last week about the penalties for sin. In the Old Testament, there was often an immediate penalty for sin with little room and opportunity for repentance and then turning back and following for the rest of your life, right? If you committed adultery, you were to be stoned. It wasn't like you could say, I've sinned, I've turned from that sin, and now I'm going to follow God, right? There was to be an immediate penalty for many of those sins in Old Testament times, according to the book of Leviticus. And yet now in the church, there is an opportunity for, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, those who committed all sorts of sins, greed, murder, adultery, slander, all of these things, such were some of you, you have been sanctified, and now you can be a part of God's family, come near, worship Him, alongside other sinners, despite the fact that you would be unclean or imperfect or even face death under the Old Testament law. Even building on that, though the church is made of those who are sinners, she can even be presented to Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 11.2, as a pure virgin. 
and a radiant bride dressed in clean white, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and a nation of priests that serves God the right way, 1 Peter 2, 9. How is this made possible? Because all of these conditions that could never really be dealt with in the framework of the Old Testament system have been addressed and dealt with and solved in Christ and in his work. And so until Christ came, there was a barrier for all of these people. Now that Christ has come, there's a way that's opened. Not I come to God however I want and stay that way. Not I come to God and on my own terms. But if you come to God in genuine repentance, turning from your sin and faith, believing in Jesus, you have a way open to God's presence where it was shut before. Building on that, God offers what is special to all. We see this uh, as we continue here about who was able to eat what God had provided in the beginning of chapter 22. For the Israelites, who could eat the food offered at the temple of which a portion remained for the priests? Only the priests, only the Levites. Those who ate had to be ceremonially clean. It says, if the person approaches while he has an uncleanness, he shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. Now, this was not an, an unintentional uncleanness, but rather uh, because in verse 14 it says, if he eats it unintentionally, he shall add to a fifth of it and give the holy gift to the priest. So there's, a, there's an allowance made for someone who unintentionally does what God has forbidden here. But if he says, I know I'm ceremonially unclean, and I'm going to eat of this food, then it says he will be cut off. Now that's a little bit vague, right? We see this sort of back and forth. In some places it says the people are to cut him off. In other places it says he will be cut off, implying that God is the one who does it. The point is that God's judgment rests on him for intentionally defiling God's temple, right? We'll talk more about how the Pharisees viewed the temple being defiled in a moment. So they had to be ceremonially clean. Those who ate the food had to be Levites. And let's say that there was a Levite woman who married a non-Levite man, which was allowed in the nation of Israel. She could no longer eat of the food of the priests, right? Because she has been joined to, as it says in the passage, a, a common person, a layman, someone who is not a priest. And then the regulation is expanded to if her husband were to die and she returns to her father's house, then she could eat of it again. But even if there was someone who was able to eat of it, now joined in marriage to someone who's not part of the priest, could no longer eat of it. Well, what do you do with an example of someone like David? Remember the story in 1 Samuel 21? David is starving. He goes in the temple. He says, do you have any food? They said, only the food that's, that's here before God. And David eats of it. Why does David not die? Was David a priest? No. Was God happy with people who were not priests behaving as though they were priests? No, because Saul was condemned for offering sacrifices instead of waiting for Samuel, right? And, and others as well were condemned for setting up their own priesthood later in the Old Testament. Why was David spared? Well, Jesus actually uses this in Mark 2 as an illustration of the fact that the point of the rule was never about doing it to the exclusion of what God had called people to do. What did God call people to do? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. So in terms of an ethical hierarchy, 
What was the highest priority? Let David starve and not let him eat of the bread or offer him the bread that God had provided for the priests, even though he would not normally be allowed to have it. It was, love your neighbors yourself, let him eat of this, right? And God in his mercy spares David's life, although normally he would have been condemned. But this was a very serious thing in the Old Testament. This food was reserved for the priest. If you ate of it when you weren't supposed to, at the very least, there was a penalty. This 20% added back to it. If you did it intentionally, you would be cut off. But what do we see in the New Testament? In the New Testament, we see the food of God, the bread of life, in the person of Jesus Christ being able to be shared by all. Reverently, with preparation, but shared by all. It was for those who in the Old Testament would have been excluded by their nationality for the most part, right? Think of that instance where there's the woman from Syrophoenicia who comes to Jesus and she asks him to heal her son and he says basically, but you're not an Israelite and I've come to, to speak to the Israelites, right? What's her response? Her response is, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. I would not normally be allowed to share in what it is that you are doing, but I have faith. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I, I believe in you. What's Jesus' response? She has faith when the very people that I'm coming to bring salvation to and offer to them are rejecting me. And so he rewards her faith. He responds to it. He, he grants her request. We see a similar idea in John 12, 32, where Jesus, with a crowd of Greeks, Gentiles, and a crowd of Jews standing nearby, says, And if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Not just you Israelites who think you're the only ones who are the recipients of God's blessing, but also you Greeks over there who formerly, Ephesians 2, were far away. You can be brought near in Christ. There were those who excluded by nationality, by, by religion, who are now able to come through near through faith in Christ. There were those who excluded due to the fact of, uh, in the Old Testament system, for example, there was the court of the Gentiles, right, in the temple. There was the court of the women. There was the court of the men. So if you were a woman, which is not a sinful state according to Scripture, but in the way the temple was organized, the women could only go so far and no further. The men could only go so far and no further. The priests could go into the innermost part, but only once a year, and only the high priest, and only for a brief period of time. And the Gentiles are way back here. They couldn't even go as close as the women, or the Jewish men, or the priest. And yet in Jesus, those distinctions are taken down. Now people have misused those verses and said they disappear. It's as though those distinctions no longer exist. That's not the point of, for example, Colossians 3 or Galatians 3.28. Those distinctions still exist, right? In Jesus' day, in the day of the apostles, there was still male and female, slave and free, different nationalities, all of those things. It's not as though those categories cease to exist, but when you come into the church, they cease to matter for purpose of your standing before God. You see the difference? It's not we act as though they no longer are there, but this person is not closer to God because they were born into the nation of Israel. This person is not closer to God because they were able to come this close in the temple, in the tabernacle, but rather all can come to God through Jesus. 
Where do we see examples of this in Jesus' ministry? Well, John 9, the healing of the man born blind. Unable to come, now he's able to come through God's power. The lame man in, in uh, Acts 3, he's healed. Unable to come, now able to come through God's power. Now, the Pharisees still might not have let that person into the temple, but do you know who did give them access to God? Jesus did. Jesus is the bread of life. This food that was reserved for the priest is now shared by all. Now, thirdly, God makes those who were unacceptable to be acceptable. And why do I say those, the, what's unacceptable be acceptable, if we're talking about an offering, which is what we see in the later part of chapter 22, where it says it must be an, an offering without defect, why would that have anything to do with us today, right? Because we're not bringing offerings. Let's talk first about what the Israelites had to bring. Their offerings had to be without defect. Imperfect animals cannot be offered to God. Verses 17 through 25. The offerings had to be given and eaten according to specific rules. Verses 26 through 31. Did the Israelites follow this? No. By the time of Malachi, they had gone back to the attitude of Cain. Cain's attitude was, I will bring my sacrifice and God will be happy with it. In Malachi's day, the people said, we've brought a sacrifice, deal with it, God. And what does Malachi say? Yes, you've brought a sacrifice. You went and found the one that the wolves had torn up in the corner of the field, the one that's missing a leg, the one that's blind, the one who got caught in that thorn bush and has, has all of these other problems with it. And the point is not that we should immediately get rid of any animal that's imperfect. The point was that God demanded the first and best from his people, and the Israelites were like, yeah, we don't want to do that. We'll give you whatever we don't want. God would not accept their offering if it didn't meet the requirements that he had laid out. But what about today? We don't do animal sacrifices today, so what does it have to do with us? Well, think about what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Today we are sanctified to be God's living offering of our very selves. And so as we are the offering that is brought before God, both the one who brings and the one that is brought in service to him, not to deal with our sins, Jesus has done that, but rather by way of thanksgiving and freely, paralleling some of the other sacrifices in the Old Testament system, we are only able to do that because Jesus has sanctified or set apart his people. Listen to verse 32 again of Leviticus 22. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. What does Jesus say in John 17? I will sanctify my people. Just like God sanctified, set apart the Israelites, just like God desired the people to set him apart in the way that they viewed him and worshipped him, God expects the same today. In Acts 26, we see that God called Paul to bring the message of the gospel about God who sanctifies to the Gentiles. In 1 Peter 1, 2, we see, again, writing about the fact that those who are sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we've already talked about, you were all these sins, you did all these sins, now you're washed, now you're sanctified by the blood of Jesus. 
Colossians 1.13, Romans 12.1, all of these passages work together to show us this picture that just like Jesus, God in the person of His work in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, was setting apart the Israelites and sanctifying them, God is doing that same work in us today. Except we're not bringing animals from our flock to offer to God. We're bringing ourselves. And how can those who are sinners be ever offered as in living sacrifice to God when they are imperfect and flawed and sinful? Because of the work that God has done. You and I can't make ourselves acceptable offerings for God. We can't. We can try. Ben Franklin tried, right, to be a good person. He made his list of all the virtues and character qualities that a person should have. And he says, I'm going to do this one for these two weeks, right? I'm going to go work on this next one. Do you know what I think he found? You can't do it on your own. You can work on, okay, I'm not going to be angry for these two weeks. But at the same time, you're not angry for these two weeks. What are you doing? Maybe you're still being greedy. Maybe you're still being lustful. Maybe you're still being whatever. Fill in the blank. Some other sin from the list of sins that we have in the Bible. You can't do this in your own power. But God can and does sanctify his people and over the course of time actively change them. So Jesus sanctifies his people to worship them, worship him fully. Now why is this such a serious thing? Well, consider the words of Hebrews 10, verse 29. Or we'll start in verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If such a great penalty existed in the Old Testament for those who broke God's law then, how much more concerned should we be about following the God who has sanctified and done this work in us? The author of Hebrews continues and says in verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So there's confidence there, as well as a sober warning. Why, is there, why can both exist at the same time? The sober warning is, don't think that you belong to me when your, your life shows that you don't. But there is confidence that it, the one who has begun a good work in you will also complete it until the day when Jesus comes back. Both truths are there. And so the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, where do we stand in terms of those things? Are we condemned by the warning, or do we find confidence by the, the, the sure promise? And that's something that I can't answer for you. But before God, you know the answer to that. Do I know God? The Bible makes it clear that you and I on our own are unacceptable, unclean, and defiled by sin. Jesus makes the only way possible for that to be dealt with, for us to come before God, to serve Him, to be accepted before Him, both as offering and as priest and as disciple and all the things He calls us to be and do. So have you received that? Do you continue to follow him? 
Those who were imperfect can be made perfect to serve God. Those who were excluded can share in God's good gifts. Those who were unacceptable as offerings can become living offerings to God. So what should our response be? If you're still in the first category, trust in Jesus so that you who are unclean in sin can be pure in God. And if you have trusted in Jesus, marvel at the amazing work of God and rejoice in what He is doing today. He was doing an amazing work in the Old Testament and He is doing a yet greater work today, anticipating the greatest work of all when He brings all who have ever believed and followed and trusted in Him together to serve Him for all of eternity. And that's what we look forward to. Let's pray. Dear God, as we consider these truths from Leviticus and compare and contrast them to what we see in the New Testament, we see similarities, we see differences, but we see this one theme running through these things. We are sinners. You are holy. By our very selves, we often defile what is holy. And only in Jesus can that defilement, uncleanness, sin be dealt with. And so, Lord, may we cling to him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.